kinds of disunity. You know, the, uh, it, it, we hate that. Who, who here really likes strife and contention? I mean, Curtis Shockey. <laughs> That's strike two. One more. <laughs> then I'm going to seek... I'm gonna, I'm going to seek sick Dale on you. <laughs> but, but these are good things. And um, I really hope and pray that, that we see the, the whole thought that James is speaking to us carried all the way through. Because it, there are so many familiar verses here that we sometimes use, not out of context, but in just general everyday Christian life and speaking, you know, if the Lord wills. You know, and, 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 and different things like this, you know, and, and, you know, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, and, and um, you know, come now, who are you to say that today we're going to do this, and tomorrow we're going to, our life is a vapor, and, and, and they come to have these meanings apart from the main message that James is speaking here, so I would challenge you to kind of set some of that familiarity with these Christian sayings that we kind of conjure from God's word and take them in the whole context of the thought that's being spoken so we can maybe again see the the freshness and the total message that God has for us. And as we do that, I want to just jump back really quickly to James chapter 3 because as we follow the contextual flow, what we see is that James in chapter 3 has drawn our attention to the fact that the words that we speak have power, right? And, 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 the, and, the, and the words that we speak, because they have power, they can have serious impact on the lives of others. However, the things that we speak cannot be separated from the things that we do. And I know we know that. You know, James says earlier on, you know, let us be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. But it's, it's more than just being a hearer and a doer, because sometimes we think that doing is speaking, and that's not doing. That's different than doing. And, and as a matter of fact, if you've ever met somebody that always talks a lot and never does anything, it's kind of a frustrating thing. And, 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 and so equally important for us is not just the words we speak, but the, it's, it's, it's important in relationship to the things we do as, as far as spiritual maturity and living our lives as Christians. And so how we live is equally as important as the words that we speak in many, many different ways. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verses 35, uh, 34 and 35, he, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says, man, you guys, he says, brood of vipers, right? We all know that. He says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the, and he goes on to, to, to elaborate that thought, and he says, for out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And, and it says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, Right? What we do is going to be reflective of the good that's in us. And, of course, that's, that's God, that's Christ that does the good work in us and has put good things in us. But the, the point that Jesus is making is, is clear, and he goes on, and he says, in contrast, he says, and an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. So as James in chapter 3 dwelt with, dealt with the mouth, right, the words we speak and what comes out, the, the tongue, right, uh, uh, cannot be tamed by any man, um, and as he spoke about that and our need to control it or to bring it into to the submission of God, here in chapter 4, with the total of all the verses that we read, James is dealing with the issues of our heart and the actions that come forth from that. And so keep that in mind and look through that lens as we go back through all of these verses. And in this chapter, it, it, it's so important for us to understand and see what James is talking about because everything leads back to the heart and it's our heart that the Bible says that God sees clearly. And he not only sees clearly into our heart, but the Bible tells us that God is ultimately deeply concerned with our heart, right? The issues of the heart. Um. Now, as we begin to, to, as James starts off with these two, this, this, this well-known question, where do wars and fights come from among you? And I don't know about you, but as I begin to think about that in relationship to real life things, how many of you would say that like 90% of the fights or the conflicts that you find yourself in, whether it's with a family member or a spouse or a child or even a you know, even within the church, how many of those, those 
out of a percentage, out of one to ten, how many do you think that those 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 fights or wars or conflicts or strife or whatever comes out of it is is really something of great importance? It's usually over some absurd thing, isn't it? I mean, how many times do we hear about like divisions in a church because of something as silly as the color of the carpet, you know, or 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 or, or things like that. And the truth is, is is that's really true about all of mankind. You think about even these massive world conflicts, how many of these wars down through history have really been for some kind of major thing? You know, like I think of one like, you know, standing up against the evil of Nazism and, 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 and that. That was, that was a real major conflict worth. And not to say that there's not reasons to fight, but you know what, in my life, I don't really have those kinds of that was a great, worth, worthy battle. You know, that was conflict-worthy. It usually falls into this category where James goes, you know, it's just an issue of your flesh. And, and, and have any of you ever heard of the War of the Oaken Bucket? How about the War of Jenkins' Ear? How about the War of the Whiskers? <laughs> And, and even though these, these names of these wars sound really absurd and you go, well, how can that ever be a real war like the War of 1911 or World War II? Those, all three of those are, 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 are actual wars that occurred over very trivial, trivial things as their names allude to. And they were actual wars fought between nations, not just people or or. or or families, they were, they were national wars, and you can read about them in most history books. In fact, the War of the Whiskers, that's the one that I found the most intriguing. I want to tell you about it. The War of the Whiskers was fought between England and Germany, or England and France. And, and this war that began lasted for over 300 years. And, and, and it was for no greater purpose than, than really this, a husband's stubbornness and a wife's nagging spite. Now, let me explain. <laughs> it's, it's, it's true. It's what history says. And history tells us that when Francis Louis VII returned from, from the Crusades, he had chose to keep his beard that he had grown while out in the battlefield. Well, when he came home, as you can imagine, his wife, who liked a clean-shaven man, was not so happy about it. Eleanor of Aquitaine, that may not be how you pronounce it, but she couldn't stand her husband's whiskers. So history tells us that after nagging him for some time to shave it off, and of course he refusing to do so, she took, took action and, and had the, the marriage annulled, but even did, did something greater that she went and, and, and found herself a new man King Henry II of England. What role? Which in turn sparked the War of the Whiskers, as it's come historically to be known. And for 300 years, British and French soldiers died for no greater purpose than a stubborn wife and husband who truly refused to love each other and nurture a healthy marriage. You know, and, and just think about the battles that go on in your own marriage relationship. I think about mine. We fight like what, once a year maybe? Maybe, but <laughs> when we do, it's usually about something silly, you know, and, and we get our feathers all up in a ruffle and, and, and our stubbornness kicks in and our flesh is warring, you know, and, and you get done and it's just like, you, you finally make up and you're like, oh, what? that was stupid, what was that really worth? It's like the war of the whiskers, right? And, and um, sadly, guys, in the world we live in, war is a fact of life. And like I said, there are some justified reasons for fighting and standing up for what's, what's right. And not only are there wars between nations, but there's, there's all kinds of wars um, um, on almost every, life, uh, uh, every level of life. Like I already said, between family members, husbands and wives, and, and sadly, even between church members. And in this chapter, James discuss the issues of wars and fighting, and what he's really telling us is how they can be stopped. And you know what? I think all of us don't need any advice how to start a war, but maybe we need to 
hear James's words this morning to see, or this evening to see how we can put a stop to them, or perhaps even do our part to prevent them. So furthermore, what we see through this text is that there were wars and fights in the early church. And I love that because so many times I hear people that, that, that look at the church today and are judgmental and critical and go, oh, only if we could be like the early church. You know, those guys were probably a lot more messed up than even we were are today. You know, and as long as you have imperfect people, you're going to have an imperfect church. And they had problems. There was wars and fights and disputes and divisions going on among them. And James had to write about these ungodly divisions that were coming up. And the primary reason, really, and this is what it boils down to, if you look at verse 17, is the very summation of all this, where he says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. And so really the issue that James is dealing with is, is, is wars and fights, this various things, it all boils down to is this issue of disobedience to God. You know, if I was, if I was in perfect submission to God and, and, and um, uh, loving my wife as perfectly as Christ loved the church, which God tells me to do, I would never fight with my wife. You know what I'm saying? There just wouldn't, because... That's not, it, 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 it would be a whole different this type of discussion, a whole different type of relationship. And so what James is really pointing out is, is when we have infighting among us, what's going on is, is there's really an issue. It's, it's an issue of disobedience. Disobedience. And obviously there's an unbelieving world and there's a believing world, but James is dealing with us as believers, Okay. And as James points out that there was, in this, as he points out that there was a lack of, um, uh, in, in regards to this disobedience, specifically with the early church and also for us as well, that, that what was going on is there was really a lack of true separation from the worldly things or the things of this world and the lives of the people. Remember, God calls us to be separate. He's called us out. And now, it's, 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 it, this is important, not just so that you can have harmony in your life. That's not, this isn't a feel-good message where James goes, I just want you to be happy. You know, God does, he, he wants us to be blessed, but we got to see just the really, the, 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 the tragedy involved in these kinds of things. Because it's a tragic and a destructive thing whenever the people of God are not dwelling together in unity. And, and not only are we an awful witness to the world, we're also this, we're also an obstruction to the work of God when we find ourselves in this place. And in turn, we do miss out on the blessings of God. Remember, in Psalm 133, it says this, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And then he gives us some, some analogies. This is like the precious oil upon the head, running down from the beard of Aaron. Running down onto the edge of his garments. It's like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's, it's a joyous thing is what he's saying. He also says it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mounts of Zion. And I've done a study on this. The Mount Hermon is the tallest place in Israel. And, and you can actually ski on it. But when the waters, or when the snow melts, it doesn't run off. What it does is it's a very porous mountain, very porous rock. And it runs down through and seeps out down below and flows into the rivers and, and waters out the whole land. Think about that. That's an awesome thing. He says, when we dwell together in unity, it's like the living water of God flowing down through us, seeping in, and then out into the lives of people around us. It's a cool thing. Furthermore, he goes on and he says this. He says, it's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the Mount of Zion. He says, for there also the Lord commanded blessing, life forevermore. That's what it's like when we dwell together in unity. And so James, he begins this chapter by asking these two rhetorical questions. And of course, we know the answers to them. But in verse 1, he says this, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? And by this, James is pointing out that our conflicts which lead to ungodly divisions are rooted in a desire to please ourselves. It's that simple. And, and, this is, and this is really when we, in those moments, and we all know what this is like, it's in those moments when we give way to the desires of our flesh, which wars against the Spirit of God, which is living inside of us. Now, our flesh is really only one of three things that James addresses here. It's, it's the first of three enemies. Your flesh is an enemy. My flesh is an enemy. You know, and it can even be your enemy. My flesh can be your enemy. <laughs> 
And your flesh can be my enemy. But it's an enemy. And, and, and it's the first of the three enemies that James will identify in this chapter as the cause or one of the causes for disputes and disunity. The flesh. And I think we all go, yeah, no duh. When my spouse is in the flesh, it causes divisions. <laughs> but Paul, you know, in the book of Romans, specifically in chapter 6 and 8, he teaches us, I'm not going to go through it now, but it's very familiar. It teaches us about that battle that goes on inside of us, saying that it's our flesh which lusts after or desires is the word that's also used there to have the things, to have things our way. And, 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 um, It, th- when this, what's going on in that is, is it wars against spiritual and the eternal things of God. Okay, thanks for letting me know. Got a little worried there. Okay, back to the the, the get my brain back here. And, and so he speaks about, you know, that, that flesh that wars against the spiritual and eternal things of God. And so in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, Paul says this as kind of the, the answer or the fix, right? He says, I say then, and, and it's, it seems like an easy thing to do by the way that Paul writes about it. We know it's very difficult, but he says, walk in the spirit. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh less against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And James went on to address this very same thing in verses 2 and 3 when he says this. He says, you lust, right, and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, now this word lust is the Greek word epithemeo. Epithemeo. And, and it simply means desires. And I, I kind of already spoke about that as I was speaking through it. But, but it specifically refers to this. It specifically refers to the natural and differing desires that we have. Like, have you ever had a desire for food? You're like, you're hungry, right? That's a good thing. And, and, and there's other natural desires that God's placed in us that are good, and, and, and all these things are, are at work in our body, which can also motivate us in an ungodly way, right? Into the place where we take the natural things of God and pervert them, and in doing so, it creates a problem. Like overeating creates a problem. Sex desires, outside, desires for sex outside of the marriage creates a problem. And, and, and so there's all these kinds of things going on. And in light of this, we need to keep in mind that the flesh by itself, guys, is not sinful. The flesh by itself and in and of itself is not sinful. Rather, it's that sin nature, uh, which desires to control our flesh that is sinful. And this is why Paul wrote that the, 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 about that battle in Romans 6 and 8 and also in Galatians chapter 5. And really what he's doing, he says, in, he's encouraging us to surrender our bodies, therefore, not to the lust or to the desires of the flesh, but to surrender it over to the will of God, the Spirit of God. And, and he's very clear in telling us that if we do not do so, then we're powerless. We're powerless to keep the lust or the desires of our flesh in check. You're going to be under the control of, 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 you can be under the control of many things. But if you think you can just control your own desires and somehow bring forth good, that's what we all tried to do to some degree before we came to the Lord. Right? And it was like you finally go, God, I can't do this. I'm messing it up. You take control. Right? And we even turn to all kinds of other things in order to take control so that we could maybe get by drugs and alcohol and all kinds of other things that we were under the influence or the power of. And ultimately, it's the Lord that we need to be in submission to, the Lord that we need to be empowered to, uh, under empower. And, and, and in verse 2, James goes on to describe the sinful actions that comes as a result of the lust of the flesh, saying that it's our lust which causes us to murder, right? To covet, 
to fight and war against each other. And, and as you begin to look at this, it's really significant that the word covet is there because the covet, thou shalt not covet, is the what? Anybody know what commandment? Tenth commandment. Very good, Bible scholar Chuck Reed. <laughs> but, but covetousness, guys, is really kind of a, a root to a lot of things, is it not? It's often the reason for why a person would murder, because they're covetous. Why a person would tell lies. Why they would dishonor their parents. Why they would commit adultery. And in one way or another, covetousness can be the door that, that is open to violate all of God's moral laws. Not always, but it's, it's, it's very, very often one of the vehicles that we get there. And that's why the Lord goes through that and he ends it with, thou shalt not covet. And so when a, when a fight springs up between brothers, James is saying that it's typically rooted in the sin of covetousness, which is our desire to this. It's, it can be either our desire to have things our way or to have what someone else has. It's not always about getting what someone else has. It's, it could be about getting what we want. And, and this could be for material things. It could be for power. It could be for authority. It could just be because I want to be right. It could be a spiritual blessing that someone else has received. And it could even be for another person's attention. And, and it's these desires that cause us to react in ungodly ways, James says, and to rise up against one another. And now when James said in the second part of verse 2 that we, we have not because we ask not. Guys, understand. Keep it in context. He's not suggesting that, that, we, we, that, that God will give us the things that our flesh or desires or that, that our flesh desires or that we covet simply because, because we ask for it. God, I want it. And, and I'm not going to go fight about it. I'm just going to say, pray and you'll give it to me. That's, that's not obviously what James is speaking about here. What he is saying is this. He's saying that we have not because we do not pray and seek God's will. We're not seeking God's will. It's not just about getting on the phone and going, oh yeah, I'm calling it in. It's about getting your heart right. Remember, it's an issue of the heart. It's about not praying and seeking God's will. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say that when we do pray, and this is the summation or the explanation, he says when we do pray our prayers, they're often just selfish prayers and we're asking God, for things that are outside of his will and order in an, in an attempt to simply satisfy the desires of our flesh. Simply put, our sin nature, guys, is first and foremost, it's at war with God. And, you know, and if, you're not, if things aren't right with God, if this relationship here is not right, these relationships here will never be right. Never. And so when we consider this in nature, we have to see that it's first at war with God, and it can even wrongly encourage us to make requests that don't even honor or glorify God, our sin nature. Consequently, that selfish living and our selfish praying, what does it lead to? Wars, fights, the disunity. And the fact of the matter is, is when we are warring with ourselves, because often the battle's going on inside and there's no peace and no joy and no contentment or whatever going on inside, you know, you're not going to have peace with those around you. Furthermore, when we covet and when we lust for what we don't have, you know what ends up happening? There's bitterness. We hold grudges then we can even seek vengeance upon the very persons God has called us to love. You see, God in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 7 through 18, he said this. He said, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you don't do all these things. God says, just do this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says, for I am the Lord. In other words, he's going, Dad says. Sadly, as you guys all know, too many people look at those of us who make up the church and they want nothing to do with Jesus because of all the fighting that goes on among us, because of the lack of unity and lack of love that is often demonstrated. And all too often we put on, guys, the armor of God, right? Right? We put on the whole armor of God 
in order to go fight each other. And in doing so, we even use religious or spiritual things to justify our ungodly behavior. We wear the armor of God as a mask and go attack in the name of Jesus Christ, when really it's just the lust or desire of our flesh that we're seeking. Yet in the midst of our conflicts, guys, there's no rest, there's no peace, no joy for for those of us who have been saved. And when people see this, it's no surprise that they don't want to have anything to do with us. They go, you guys are a mess. But the truth is, is we must put on the full armor of God and go to battle against our sin nature and against those who desire to separate us. And the bottom line is we cannot be a people who have confessed our sin, put away our idols, and have begun to serve the Lord by refusing to submit to God's command to love each other as faithfully as we love ourselves. And the Bible is very seriously about dealing with this issue of getting along. You can read through every single New Testament letter and you're going to find at least one encouragement, one warning, one rebuke to the church about getting along. And this is why God's word instructs us to, he says, dwell together in unity, to avoid a divisive person, to avoid foolish and vain arguments. Furthermore, it teaches us to, to, to go to one another and be willing to work things out when a problem does arise. In fact, Even, God says, even if you're at the altar, he says, even if you're at my altar worshiping me, he says, and you remember that your brother has something against you, then you should immediately leave your gift and go to that person and deal with it. Make it right. But perhaps the most sobering sobering assertion, guys, that the Bible makes about having a love for one another and having unity is written by the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John who said this in 1 John 4. 20 and 21. He said, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must also love his brother. You see, in this, ultimately we need to see through James' words that God is challenging us to sincerity. To be real with one another. Sincere. To be, to, 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 he's, he's challenging, as he's calling us to sincerity and genuineness, what he's really doing is he's challenging the genuineness and the sincerity of the person or of us when we say we love him and yet not love our brother. Jesus said in John 15, verse 12, that we are to love one another as he has loved us. And we all know that the kind of love that Jesus exampled to us is a sacrificial love, not a self-seeking love, meaning Jesus loved us not only in word, but also in deed by the things he did. By sacrificially laying his life down for us, and our love for each other also needs to be not only in the words that we speak, but in, in, the, in the things that we do, by how we act towards one another, and as we serve each other, and as we look past each other's imperfections, and as we extend to each other the same grace, mercy, and forgiveness that Jesus extends to us. And so when it feels like someone's crucifying us, we go, but I love you, but I love you, but I love you. So in verse 4, it says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever of the world, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells in you yearns, in us yearns jealousy? Now, it's important to point out that spiritual adultery is what James is referring to in verses 4. In verse 4, he's not speaking about adultery within the marriage relationship. It's, it's obviously the, the spiritual adultery that um, uh, uh, takes place when we um, give our love or affection to, to something or someone else other than the Lord, the thing that he deserves. And, and spiritual adultery is simply being married to Jesus but giving our love really to the temporal or evil things in this world, right? In the light of this, we see that friendship with the world is the second enemy that James points out in this chapter. The second enemy that James identifies for us that will cause disunity among us. Friendship with the world will bring forth disunity among God's people in every relationship all the time. 
And we all know that those of us who have taken the name of Jesus, that we've been called out of the world. And therefore, we cannot be a friend of God and a friend of the world at the same time of the world that hates God. God makes it really clear that the world hates him and hates us. And we, you can't be both. So when we come to Jesus and we... And, and, and so when we come to Jesus, you know what? We had and we have to daily make a decision to either live for Jesus or to live for this world. And the Bible tells us that in, in summation of this, that we really cannot serve two masters, right? Furthermore, Jesus, it says even here, is jealous for you. He's jealous for us. Jealous for our love, jealous for our time, and jealous for our thoughts. And he's not willing to share us and our affections for him with this world who hates him. And in light of this, I want to point out the Bible teaches us that there are really four steps. There's this progression that takes place um, that leads to spiritual adultery and into a wrong relationship with the world. Four steps. And in verse 4, James is telling us first that spiritual adultery begins with a friendship with the world that will cause us to be enemies of God. You know, and really, this is a natural progression in even human relationships. You know, you start with a friendship, right? Your friends. You like puppies, I like puppies too. You know? That's your favorite color, that's my favorite color. And, 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 and so that's how it begins. And this friendship with the world is the first step, but from there it leads to a second step which is being made dirty by the world. Remember, Jesus had said in, in um, um, he said that um, true religion, or James said, James had said back in chapter 1, verse 27, that a true religion, a true relationship with God is keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. And the point is, if we desire to be, if we desire to be friends with the world, do you know what's going to happen? You're going to become defiled. You're going to become spotted. You're going to be contaminated by the world. You know, Paul was speaking this same truth when he wrote to the Corinthian church about purity and said in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, he said, bad company corrupts. Yeah. But this progression goes even further than being defiled or contaminated by the world, considering the third step in the path that leads to spiritual adultery is a love for the world, right? A love for the world, not just a friendship. And it was the Apostle John who warned about this in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world, Here it is again, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And this world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And when we or a fellow believer, and I'm sure you've seen this and even experienced this yourself, is in love with the things of this world, you know what's going to cause? Disunity. Disunity in our relationship with God, and likewise in our relationship with those around us, because of their love for God, um, they're called to despise the things of this world, and so there's there's not there's not a uh, there's not a unity simply because of that fact. You, you're loving two different things. You're wanting two different things, and and as we have all seen with so many believers who are no longer walking with God, they in their lives are no different than any other believer unbeliever in the world. When you get to that place where you're loving the things of the world and you're giving over to it and you profess Christ, you know what? You're not going to look at all like a Christian. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, he warns about this last step that we can take that leads us into this spiritual adultery, which brings forth this wars and this fighting and this unity. And he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, he says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to the world. Friendship with the world, defiled by the world, love of the world, and then ultimately conformed to this world. So to become like the world is, is, is the end result of spiritual adultery. And conformity to the world is to look like the world which is really spiritually dead. 
And it is to live like the world which has no hope. And it is to act like the world which is all about self, right? Me, 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 me. In other words, when we're conformed to the world, we stop being a light. We stop looking like Jesus. And we begin to look and even smell <laughs> like everyone else who does not know Jesus. And yeah, they have a smell. It's the smell of death. And we need to see that, isn't it? The Bible says that we are, we, are, we, we are the fragrance, the aroma of life. But you know what? We need to see that these steps of compromise are dangerous because Christians who are friends of the world, you know what? They're hostile to God. And they're hostile towards God's people. And if, if we become conformed to the world, we will also be hostile to God's people, to God and his people. And so we need to check our hearts. If there's a place where there's division, we need to go, is it me, Lord? Am I, am I lusting or am I giving way? Have I committed spiritual adultery in this area of my life? Am I not in unity because I'm not with someone around me because I'm not in unity with you? Is it me? And James goes on in verses 5 through 7. And he says, or do you think that Scripture says in vain that the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Guys, pride. It has to come up into this discussion, does it not? I mean, it's just a, it's just a given. And, and, and pride is a great sin, and, and um, it may be the chief of all sins. Andrew Murray says, and I, I tend to agree with him, that, 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 that pride may be the chief of all sins or the root of all sin. And, and you know, and pride was the sin that brought Satan's downfall, was it not? That's what we're told. And, and, and Satan knows that by tempting us to react in prideful ways, he can cause divisions between us and God and God's people. Us and God's people. And even though pride is really just a fruit of the flesh, it's also a tool or a weapon that Satan will use against us, doesn't he? And so we must see that Satan is this third enemy. Satan is the third enemy that James identifies for us that can cause divisions among us. In light of this, we need to understand that God wants us to be humble, but Satan wants us to be proud, puffed up. God wants us to depend on his grace while Satan wants us to depend on ourself, thinking we're good enough. God wants to see that apart from him, no good thing exists in us. While Satan wants us to believe that even if we're not good, at least we're better than those people who are around us. Right? And the fact of the matter is, is when we live for the world and for our flesh, we become proud like Satan, and, and he will take advantage of this every single time. Fortunately for us, the Bible tells us here, God wants to give us more grace. God just wants to give us more grace. More than anything that Satan can give us. But God, guys, God cannot help a Christian who is proud because in our pride we refuse to repent. In our pride we refuse to humble ourselves before God. And so James points out in verse 7 that we first must, what, submit to God before we can be effective to resist Satan. Who wants to separate us from God, from God and cause these wars and these fights among us that lead to divisions. Now, the Greek word here in verse 7 for the word submit is the word hapatasso. And it's a military term. I love it. It's a military term that means this, to get into your proper rank. You know what that means, Scott? <laughs> if you've been in the military, yeah, Virgil knows I like this because by it we see that when we submit to God, what we're doing is we're acknowledging him as the commander, and in turn, we're willing to take our submissive position as his soldier. In light of this, we see that, this, that, that submission is an act of the will. It's not a feeling. I don't feel like it. It's because you don't feel like it. It's an act of the will, which says... Not my will be done, but yours be done. If we're to hold back any area of our life from God in this way, you know what we're going to expect, what we should expect? We should expect there's going to be conflict. If you're in the military, Scott, and you don't get in your proper position in regards to rank, and someone's telling you to do so, does it go well with you? Is there going to be conflict? For sure. 
Not only that, do you make wise decisions in that place? No, and the same is true with God. When we're not in that spot, you know what we're doing? We're making ungodly decisions for our lives. So there are these three enemies that want to turn us away from God and against, from, and, and, and from, from, uh, against each other. The flesh, the world, and the devil. But fortunately, guys, for us, we have a hope of a Savior. A hope of a Savior that is greater than any enemy we face. And the Bible is clear in teaching us that through Jesus Christ, God has delivered us from all of these enemies. He's delivered us from all of them, from our flesh, from the world, and from the hold that Satan's had on our lives. But the fact of the matter is, is these things can and, and do attack us, do they not? And so, so a question presents itself. How can we overcome these attacks? How can we be the friends of God and enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil? And in the remaining verses of this chapter, James gives two instructions for us to follow if we are to be spiritually mature, remember, spiritually mature in the Lord and be the peacemaker in the body of Christ and not the troublemaker. And so in verse 7 he says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And by the way, that's that is not a command that's a recognition of what happens when you draw near to God. A cleansing, a purification, right? He said, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So, the first instruction, submit. And submission to God and resisting the devil are the first step in overcoming these attacks. And as we submit to God, you know what? We don't give place to the devil like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Do not give place to the devil. And, and, when, and, and, and we're then in that place. When we do that, we're left to draw near to God, which is the second thing that James instructs us to do. Don't just go, I'm resisting and I'm submitting. You know what? Jump in Jesus' lap. Sing praise songs, read your word, hang out with other believers. You know, that whole core thing of our faith that we're called to do. It's Jesus and more Jesus. And it also tells us the way to do this is to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts. And obviously that, that we know that only God has the power to cleanse us and purify us. But you know what? We have to be willing. And you know where that willingness is, is, is revealed? It's revealed in, 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 through confession. Or we go, yep, I confess my sin. And then we ask God to, to cleanse us. And we have a promise from God who says in those moments that he will always graciously draw near to us when we draw near to him, when we draw near to him, when we allow for him to deal with the sin in our lives that keeps him at a distance. Now the final instruction James gives us is to humble ourselves, to submit and to humble, Right? And by this, we're reminded that it's possible, guys, to submit outwardly and not be humble inwardly. Right? You have kids? You know what I mean. I'll do it, but I don't want to. You know, and we're like that. You know, we're stiff-necked. We can be like that. We can be, we can be submissive outwardly, but just unhumble inwardly, meaning outwardly we do what's right or or what's expected, but, but, but inwardly our hearts are rebellious and far away from doing what is right. And what do you think is going to give birth in that? Peace? Contention? Strife? Right? You know, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 17, it tells us that God hates the sin, he hates the sin of pride. And, and, and we can be for certain that if we do not humble ourselves inwardly before God, you know what's going to happen? Yeah, he as a loving father will chasten you until you are humbled. I've been there, and many of you have too. Yet, if we obey these three instructions and, and submit to God, draw near to him and humble ourselves, then God will draw near to us. He'll cleanse us. It's a promise. He'll forgive us. You know, and then the wars and the fighting will cease. We will not be at war with God, so we not be at war with ourselves, right? We'll be walking in the Spirit, not in the flesh, and ultimately we will not be at war with others. And so in verse 11, it says, do not speak evil, James says, of brethren. Duh, you don't want any contention. 
disunity, he says, he who speaks evil of brother judges, brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one law giver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? And James begins, he, remember, he began chapter 4 talking about war. The very beginning, he's talking about war with God, and he ends about talking really about the will of God, and he gives us warnings that we must heed from war to the will of God. And, and, and these two things are directly related because if we're out of the will of God, we will become a troublemaker and not a peacemaker. That's the overlying theme that, that we we're, we're keep coming back to. And in these verses, the first warning we're given is against speaking evil of another or, or being critical of another. And remember, Jesus said, you know, when we have to keep this in mind when it's like, who are you to judge, right? Because that gets thrown in our faces as Christians all the time. And there's a proper context to it. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said that we are to help each other to overcome sin. That's the, the root of that message with the, the plank and the plank eye thing. And, 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 and he said, but as we help each other overcome sin, he, he says that we're to do so by first judging our own sinfulness, yeah, and, 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 and he says, if we have a plank in our own eye, then what right do we have to criticize the man who has the speck of dust in his? And he says, he says don't do it. He says, first remove the plank so you can see clearly to help your brother. And, you know, and really what we're being pointed to here is that self-examination is an act of humility. And it's essential when it comes to rightly judging because it prepares us to act in love rather than condemnation, right? It's this and not this. And this is James's point. And he, he goes on to say that when we judge other Christians with this sense of superiority and condemnation, we're really putting ourselves in the judgment seat as a lawgiver. But the fact of the matter is, is God's the only lawgiver. And so who are we, James is saying, to criticize, to be condemning? Who are we to judge? And in verse 12, James asks this question because he wants us to be aware that only God has the right to sit upon the judgment seat and only he has the power to punish. So if you don't go to that place, there's going to be unity. And the point is, is if all of us would just devote ourselves to obeying God's word, which is really his will, and not investing so much time, energy, and effort into seeing how well others are obeying God's will, you know what? Our churches and our relationships with each other would, would have much more peace and much more harmony. I like it. I think it's, I think it's in the book of James. He says, mind your own business. Right? I mean, that's kind of the, the simplistic thought to it all. And so he goes on in verses 13 through 17. Yes, we're going to make it. And he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. And you're like, what? What does this have to do with anything we're talking about, right? And he says, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life that is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance, and here's really what it's all about. Because... Well, I'm, I'm getting ahead. And all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And this is the last warning. And it's equally important as James warns us about really arrogance or even self-confidence. You know what? And the truth is pride and criticism, which we've already talked about, along with arrogance and self-control, or self-confidence, you know, those things always go together, right? Pride, criticism, someone who's critical, full of pride, you know, they're arrogant and they're confident in their self, right? And so here's the connection being made to us, and really it's the proud person who is confident in their self, who makes plans and does things in a, same, in a way that seems right to them, but ultimately what we're being told is that's apart from the will of God, because they believe that they ultimately know better than God. Now, they're not going to come out and say that, but that's what's being said by their actions. Yet James warns us about this kind of boasting, this kind of attitude, this kind of self-confidence. And he says it's dangerous. And it should remind us of Proverbs 16, verse 8, which tells us this. It says, pride goes before destruction and an arrogant or haughty spirit before a fall. 
And the arrogant and the self-confident person is the one who thinks that they know better than most better than God. And James simply does this. He reminds us, in light of that, of the fact that their self-confidence or our self-confidence, when we think we're all that, when we're, we're arrogant and we're, we're maybe looking down our nose at other people because of that, what James is pointing out, it's just an illusion. <laughs> it's just, it's a deception. It's an illusion. And he does so by reminding us of the fact that you're basically, we're human. You're all going to die. You think you're so great, you're, you're, you're finite. And he's, he's basically pointing out how just frail our lives are. We set all these things in motion. We have all these great plans, you know, and, 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 and we say we're going to do this and we're going to live and do that. And James is all, you're nothing. We're nothing apart from God. And that's the idea, apart from God. He says, you're here today and you're gone tomorrow, and ultimately in doing so, we're in the hands of an all-powerful God. And if we think that we're in such control of our lives, we better think again, because not only do we not know what tomorrow might hold, you know what? The Bible says none of us are even guaranteed a tomorrow. And when you understand that, you know what happens? Arrogance and pride and self-confidence, it goes out the window. It goes out the door. When you understand that, you know, this the very beating of your heart or the, 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 the breath in your lungs is dependent upon God going, yeah, I'm going to let you do that. So it's kind of like, who do you think you are? You know, in Psalm 90, verse 12, the psalmist said this, and this is how it's all tied together for us, I think. He said, he, said, he wrote and he said, so teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, it, it, understanding who we are and who God is so that we may be wise, so that we have, may have wisdom. And that's how we close here with verse 17. And James basically brings it down to that, that it's not an issue of really not knowing what God's will is or what God wants. It's, it's really an issue in, in some cases of us thinking we know better. And so James, he, he says, you know, this gaining a heart of wisdom, he says, so it's this simple. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. Don't think you know better than God. Don't look down at people. Just do what God says. In other words, live in obedience to him. Trust in him. Rely upon him. Cling to him. Father, thank you, God, for this, this message of